I don't know how many of you remember or have been following in the news a name, Asia Bibi. Does that name ring a bell to some of you? Asia is from Pakistan. In 2009, um, a long-standing dispute with her neighbors culminated in her being accused of insulting the prophet Muhammad. Asia was one of a very few group of believers in Pakistan. It began when she was at work and many of the ladies had said, well, go do this, go do this. When they had sent her to do an errand, well, while she went to get some things, she stopped at the common well, used an old tin cup, got a drink, and one of the men saw her do it. And they told her, Christians can't drink out of the cup that Muslims drink out of. And he then proceeded to tell her, you need to convert to Islam. And she said, no, why should I convert? You need to convert to Christianity. And she then said, the prophet Muhammad is like any other man who is a sinner. Well, obviously, then he was very angry. They turned her in for blasphemy. And blasphemy is a capital offense. So for about a year and a half to two years, they held her with no trial. And then they found her guilty of blasphemy. Therefore, she was to be hanged. Well, it was in the court system. And over the course of the next nine years, it would be appealed, and finally, um, the judge said, I don't see that there was any blasphemy that took place. Well, in the meantime, the governor of that area in Pakistan had been visiting her and believed that she had been um, convicted on false charges, and the Muslims in the area killed him. Then they threatened the judge who reversed the case and they told her we will they they told her we will kill your family we will kill you finally her family got out of the country and when she was supposed to be released um, they said if you get out we will kill you so they held her in solitary confinement and she had been in solitary solitary confinement for almost 10 years she was just released in April of 2019 and is out of the country. But as she is now recounting how she was treated, she said they put a collar on her neck that the guards could, with, as she says, with a large key, could tighten and tighten it. And they put a chain on that, and that was how they led her around. She said, I can't breathe. My neck is compressed by a neck brace that the guards can tighten as much as he wants with a big key. All of that came because she said, I won't renounce the Lord Jesus Christ. In our text today, we're in the book of Philippians. And remember, the book of Philippians is a thank you note. Paul had gone through very difficult times. Paul's goal or purpose was to use his life that others could prepare for eternity. 
by hearing the gospel. Therefore, he said, as we looked at last week, therefore he said he was not sad for the events happening in his life as long as they helped spread the gospel. His inconveniences were okay. But stop and think about his inconveniences. He was falsely imprisoned. He was in a shipwreck. His lack of personal space. Remember, he was chained to guards 24-7 with a new guard every six hours. I think it's important in a, in a quick review, look at chapter 1, verse 1 of Philippians. Notice what he says, Paul and Timotheus, the servants of Jesus Christ. You see, as a servant, he trusted the Lord to guide and direct his location. His job was just to make sure that his life was lived worthy of the gospel. And he wanted to make sure his life looked like the gospel. That was Paul's driving force. As we look at the book of Philippians, he describes for us how we can have joy in the middle of a very difficult world, how we can have joy when life doesn't go the way that we think that it should. And that is often the struggle that we go through. And so Paul's letter for us today is really important for us. Why was he so excited about the gospel? He said, you know, no matter what happens in my life, as long as the gospel goes forward, I'm happy. I'm joyful. I am complete. Why? Because the gospel is what gave purpose. The gospel is what gives forgiveness. The gospel is what gives us a relationship with God. The gospel changes our ownership from Satan back to God because God redeemed us. So Paul concludes his life testimony by summing it up where we ended last week, and that was this. He says, so my goal is that whether it be by life or by death, Jesus Christ will be visible to the people around me. He uses the term in the King James, he says, that Jesus Christ will be magnified. But as we talked about last week, how do you magnify an almighty God? The problem is not how big God is. The problem is how far away our culture is from God. And therefore, in our lives, it allows people to see what God is like. So now we come to the last few verses in Philippians chapter 1. He moves from encouraging them not to worry about him and sharing his life purpose to challenging them to follow his example. Let's look again at that. Verse 27. Only let your conversation be as it becometh the gospel of Jesus Christ that whether I come and see you or else be absent, I may hear of your affairs, that ye stand fast in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel, and in nothing terrified by your adversaries, which is to them an evident token of perdition, but to you of salvation and that of God." For unto you it is given in behalf of Christ not only to believe on him, but also to suffer for his sake, having the same conflict which he saw in me and now here to be in me. Paul wrote as a servant of Jesus Christ to saints in Jesus Christ. Paul the slave to Philippians, saints. 
He wrote to those in Christ who had received the gospel. Literally, this is what he's saying. Hey, whatever happens, conduct yourself in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Then, whether I come and see you or only hear about you in my absence, I will know that you stand firm in one spirit, striving together as one for the faith of the gospel without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you. Now, stop and think for a moment. It's easy to just grab a section of Scripture and lift it out of context and just dive right into it. But please remember, Paul is saying, look, I've just described to you, I think, last week's text, he said, I think, based on how I see God is working, I believe I'm going to come and see you again. I believe I'm going to be released from prison. I believe I'm going to be free to travel back to Philippi. And I hope to see you. But I'm not positive of that. I don't know if I will see you again. So he says, look, whatever happens to me, conduct yourself in a manner worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Do you see how Paul said, oh, verse 12, he said, oh, I wish you could understand that the things that are happening to me have happened rather so that the gospel has gone out. And as long as the gospel's going out, then my circumstances are acceptable. The only thing that wouldn't be acceptable is if the gospel doesn't go out. That's the whole thing that matters. So he says, now, in the same way, as I am concerned about this, and I just want to make sure, whether it be by life or by death, Christ is going to be glorified, Christ, Christ is going to become visible to this world through me, through my life. He says, now, whatever happens, you conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel. He's saying, be light. Speak, live, pattern your life in a way that looks like the gospel. So often we have, especially in very conservative circles, we've gotten to the place to where we want to live by rules and we've forgotten why we, in the very first place, ever said, hey, I think this is really important. Why do we conduct ourselves the way we do? Why do we talk the way we do? Why do we live the way we do? Why don't we do certain things? Why do we do certain things? It is not because my church says so. It is not because my pastor says this is the way you ought to live. The only thing that matters is to live in such a way that people see Jesus Christ. And as comfortable as Christians get sometimes, well, yeah, well, everybody does that. Everybody does this. The thing we always have to back up and look at is, what does the world see? I'm always fascinated by the fact that the world looks at our lives and they say, is that the way Christians live? And why do they, why do they say that? Because... They're looking at our lives and they're saying, what makes you different than me? And it's not that we're trying to live above somebody. What we are trying to get people to see is, what does the gospel look like? What does the gospel uh, look like in our lives? Paul was saying, will I live? Will I die? Will I live but not make it back to see you again? You see, the gospel of Christ is not just a way to have our sins forgiven. When he's describing the gospel, he's saying, oh, life is so much more than that. You're now freed 
from that life of bondage, and now you're free to live a different way. The whole gift of God given to you, when he's talking about the gospel here, he's going to talk about the faith. Jude calls it the faith that was once delivered unto the saints in Jude 3. Paul warns in 1 Timothy chapter 1, he says, some shall depart from the faith. You see, it's not just what, what he's talking about in living in a way that's worthy of the gospel. He's talking about living in a way that looks like what Jesus Christ is. It's not just salvation. And Paul understands that we we behave like we believe. If you really want to know what you believe, sit back and analyze how you behave. You notice I didn't say I should analyze how you behave. I said you should analyze how you behave. So how do we overcome this enemy who is going to try to get us to, to forget what God has given in the scriptures, to forget what is there? Paul is going to give us three essentials that are important for us to consider today. And in verse 27, we begin with, he talks about a unity of ownership. He says, only let your lifestyle, the word conversation there, some of you are reading different translations, and so it's not an, it's not an issue for you, but in our, con, in our King James, it says conversation, and we often just think of speech, but literally the word conversation means your lifestyle. Only let your lifestyle, no matter what happens, make sure that your lifestyle represents Jesus Christ. In that only whatever happens, that's a huge picture. You see, each, each of us have things happening to us, and we would say, yes, you don't understand. I'm going through this. And you're right. I don't know what all you're going through. Paul didn't know what all they were going through. Paul just said this. Look, no matter what you're going through, make sure that it looks like Jesus Christ. Make sure that it looks like Jesus Christ. So the word um, conversation has the idea of our walk and our talk. It has the idea of modeling the way Jesus Christ was. You know, it's funny how things stick in your mind over the years. I may not remember what I had for breakfast yesterday, but I can remember things that happened in high school. And I can remember going to, I went to a Christian high school, and we were playing against a Catholic high school. And I was very used to, when we would go to the games, the, the priests and the nuns often, I couldn't really tell a whole lot of difference between them and anyone else. But what was fascinating to me was one of the parents of one of our basketball players was there in the stands and he was letting the ref have it. He was angry. He was stomping on the bleachers. He was smacking things when he was upset. And what was interesting to me as I sat back and watched, he didn't look like the majority of our fans. Although he would claim to be a believer. Now you may say, well, that's not fair. He's at a basketball game. My point was just this. Did he look like Jesus Christ? Well, as a high schooler, I kind of looked at it and thought, whoo, that doesn't look good. But it really didn't matter. The real question was, 
as we were among other people, what did other people see? Um, Paul is saying, since we are citizens of heaven, we ought to look like one. Would you turn with me back to Ephesians chapter 4? We studied this passage. It's been just about a year ago now, a little over a year ago. Ephesians chapter 4, and remember, Ephesians is broken up into two sections. One through three is doctrinal. Four through six is the section which the practical application of all those doctrines. Paul begins, I therefore, because of all the doctrines, because of all these blessings that we've talked about, because of the gospel, he says, I beseech you that you walk worthy of the vocation wherewith ye are called. Now, I wasn't saying walk worthy of being an engineer or of a pilot or of a doctor or of an accountant or of whatever your vocation is. He wasn't saying walk worthy of that vocation. He's saying walk worthy of the vocation of being a believer. And notice what he says. He says, walk, how does that walk look? What does that look like? He says, with all lowliness and meekness, with long suffering, forbearing one another in love, Endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. I'm going to pause there for just a moment. He's describing the relationship we have with other believers. And as we flip back and forth between there and Philippians chapter 1, he's going to say, he's going to talk about our relationship with other believers. So what does lowliness mean? Lowliness of, uh, means to, to be willing to bring yourself under to be willing to bring yourself low and put others above yourself. So what does it mean when he's telling us in Philippians, he says, no matter what happens, live in a way that looks like Jesus Christ. Well, that means instead of this big pride thing that's going on of, well, you get this position and I get this position and you got more time in front of people than I got in front of other people. What really comes down to is, how can I minister to you? How can you minister to someone else? And we're thinking about other people when we're around them. Um, lowliness means knowing and accepting and being yourself for the glory of God. Every one of us are different. I was talking with one of you this past week, and, you know, there's some things I don't even blink at trying to pretend that I know. I just come and I ask. In fact, there are a number of you here in this group where I'll just say, so how does this work? Um, whether it is something for my house or something about buying a house, or something about a game, or whatever it is, you know, everyone has their strengths. And lowliness is when we know and accept, and we are ourselves for the glory of God. Lowliness doesn't mean that you, it's self-deprecating, where you're just talking about, well, I can't do that. If you can, you can. But you see, the attitude deals more with our pride than our willingness to admit what we can or can't do. Meekness is power that's under control. 
It's gentleness in your activity. So that as we're working with other people, and specifically with believers, we're gentle with each other. Could you do something in a very proud way? Yes, you could. But instead, not only with lowliness where you've put yourself under to help other people, but where you are gentle. It's letting Christ use you the way he made you. And then he talks about with long-suffering and forbearance, the idea of being long-tempered, of being patient, enduring discomfort without fighting back. You see, when we begin to live this way with lowliness, with gentleness, with long-suffering with each other, people see the gospel because that's not normal. You know, sometimes I'll hear people say, well, I'm just not, um, I could never be mean, I'm just not that way. And I always, when, they, when I hear that, I always think, we must be made differently. I can be mean, I can be selfish, I can be self-centered, and I don't even have to work at it. You know, I just, I'm naturally good at that, but no one's impressed with that. You see, it's the gospel that changes me into who I am. It's the gospel, it's God's grace flowing through me that allows me to be gentle, that allows me to have this lowliness of mind, that allows me to have long suffering and to forbear, to help lift up those who are failing. We're gonna see people fail as we work together. I'm not talking about people out in the world, I'm talking about people in our group. You're gonna see me fail. I'm gonna see you fail. And how do we respond to each other in that? Do we respond in anger? Do we respond in saying, well, they had it coming? Or do we respond in helping bear that burden with them and encouraging them so that they live in a way that looks like the gospel? See, the gospel doesn't make us perfect people. The gospel is God's enabling in our lives so that we can live a life that's different than we normally would, different than our default. Not only do we model our master, but we are patient like our master. In Philippians chapter 4, verse 3, he talks about endeavoring. The word endeavoring means to work hard at, to labor at to guard the unity of the Spirit. You see, just because we go to church doesn't mean that we can't squelch the Holy Spirit here this morning. We could come in and by our attitude, we could literally destroy the unity that's here. It's the Holy Spirit that gives us the unity. Oh, we may have some common likes and dislikes. You know, we connected a little bit this morning on some likes. But the unity is not based on just common likes. The unity that we have today is the Holy Spirit that lives within us. What an incredible feel. That's why we love to get together. Because we have this unity of the Spirit, but he says it's important that we endeavor to keep the unity of the Spirit. We're careful in our words. 
We don't create the unity. The Holy Spirit does by what he gave us, by how he made us. He broke down all the barriers. He made us all one. But we can only endeavor to keep the unity of the Spirit when we build our unity on helping carry each other along. When you know and you walk in and you say, it's been a hard week. I failed this week. And instead of everyone going, sorry, I know it hurts. It's hard to go through those things. God has not forsaken you. We have not forsaken you. You don't have to be stuck in that. You can change. And you come alongside and you encourage someone rather than tearing them down. You see, this whole thing of endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit, we can only be patient when we have our strengths under control. We can only have our strength under control when we have the right attitude about ourselves. Why is it we struggle so hard when our kids fail? Well, hopefully it's because we just, we love our kids and we hate to see them go through the hard times. But I would say I've been guilty sometimes of being upset because they make me look bad. You see, how do you keep unity in your family when someone fails? It's not when then that I rail on my kids. The failure has already taken place. The reality is, it's at that point that as I have my strength under control, I have the right attitude about myself, and I remember I'm, I'm a sinner. I have failed. You know what? Then I can come alongside my son. I can come alongside my daughter. I can even come alongside my daughter-in-law or my son-in-law and can now speak to them in a way that ministers grace. You see, Paul, when he was under this pressure, when he was in that pressure cooker of his life, Paul was saying, look, the only thing that really matters is, do people see the gospel? He talks about the bond of peace. You know, the bond of peace that each of us have is the fact that we have peace with God. James chapter 4 talks about the fact, why do we have wars and fightings among each other? It's because we war and fight on the inside. We're not at peace with God. And what's the truth? Philippians tells us, because of Jesus Christ, we are at peace with God. Satan can come in today and he can say, Mike, you have blown it. God is against you today because you are a rotten sinner. And you know the thing I have to remember? I'm also... A rotten prideful person too because you see then I begin thinking that it was all about me and it wasn't Jesus Christ while I was still sinning died for me so as a sinner does God love me less I'm at peace with God because Jesus Christ paid my debt I, I know you may weary sometimes of me just talking about the characteristics of God, but you know what is so wonderful about the fact that God is just is that he never makes us pay for what's already been paid for. 
Jesus Christ paid the debt. God declared me righteous. And because a just God who is holy, so he never changes his mind and he'll never go back. He'll never make me pay for something again. He looks at me and he says, you have had your debt paid. You see, all of a sudden, how that totally changes the way I view other people. I'm not wrestling to make myself look better than anyone else. I accept you the way you are. Why? Because I've been accepted. This peace with God, this, the bond of peace. I have peace with God so that I have peace with others. Isn't it interesting? Peace is a fruit of the Spirit, isn't it? It's a demonstration of the Holy Spirit probably an area that we're maybe weaker in when we come to conservative churches is we don't focus on the Holy Spirit enough. What a wonderful gift. A wonderful person that's come to live with me who changes me. You see, when the peace of God rules in our hearts, then we can keep the unity. Colossians chapter 3, verse 5 says, And let the peace of God rule in your hearts to the which also you're called in one body and be thankful. We are passionate about what we believe and we should be. But do we, are we all on the same page? Do we understand that there are fundamental doctrines and there are other doctrines that we're passionate about, but if people disagree with us on these doctrines, they still go to heaven. Did you just shut me off now? <laughs> Does that make you nervous? You know, you can believe something differently than I believe about the second coming, the timing of it, different things. You know what? We're both going to get to heaven. I often hear people say, and when we get there, you'll see that I was right. <laughs> but the reality is we can disagree and you're still on your way to heaven. We can even disagree on the mode of baptism. Some people sprinkle, some people pour, some people immerse. Do you know that there are going to be sprinkled people in heaven? Now you've shut me off for certain, haven't you? <laughs> Why do I say this? Because, you know, now I am passionate about what I believe. I'm passionate, and I would take you to the scriptures, and I would say, this is what God's word says. But we still have this bond of the Holy Spirit because you see, now, if you're saying, well, Jesus Christ is important, but we have to work to get to heaven. Oh, wait, no, that doesn't work, does it? Because the Bible's really clear. It's not by works of righteousness, which we've done. You see, there is this unity in the gospel that we all share. Now you say, then why are there so many different churches? Well, we find that gen even genuine believers can disagree on some things, and therefore I couldn't minister there, but I still love them. You see, there's a sweetness. When the world looks at us, they ought to see that we live in such a way as becometh the gospel. The gospel reaches across all kinds of things. Doctrine is very important. 
But make sure we understand which doctrines are most important. We have a unity of goal. Let's go back to Philippians chapter 1, the last part of verse 27. He says that whether I come and see you or else be absent, I may hear of your affairs, that ye stand fast in one spirit with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. We have in this unity of the goal, we have a unity of mind. One spirit guides us. It's not talking about, at this point, he is talking about one Holy Spirit. We're all on the same team. He's later going to say the battles that we're in prove that we're saved. He says, focus on the leading of the Holy Spirit. How does the Holy Spirit lead? The Holy Spirit leads through the scriptures. He doesn't speak about himself. He's going to guide you through God's word. But then he says, one, he says, in one spirit with one mind. The word mind there is psyche. It's what we, it's what we feel about things, how we react to them. And this really raises the question of what we consider valuable. What constitutes a worthwhile objective? And that's where we need to be careful in how we speak of other believers. As I've mentioned to you, doctrine is very important. But as we do what we do, how should we speak about other people who maybe don't dress exactly the way we dress or don't actually, who maybe do things a little differently than we do? You know, we've got a whole world that needs to hear about Jesus. I need to make sure that I'm doing what I should do. I need to make sure that I'm leading you as a church in the right direction. But you know what? There are a lot of other shepherds. There are a lot of other under-shepherds in this world who love God just like I do, and they are doing their best to lead God's people in the way they should be led. And I may not agree with what they're doing, but you know what? That's not my battle. My battle is with Satan. My battle is to make sure that people know the truth and the truth will set them free. We have one mind. This one mind idea is a, is a very, it's a single description of a very complex of our, of our heart, of our mind, of our will. It's everything that goes together. It's the thing that drives us together here. Why do we meet together? Why would you meet with a guy from Indiana who's been in Iowa who was in South Carolina and moves here? How do, we, how do we connect? Well, the reality is we have met together. We are, we are beginning a church because we have a single mind. And what is that mind? That Fargo would know Jesus Christ. That we could make him known. That someone 
is going to spend eternity with God because we were here. And I'm hoping it's more than just one. That many. So that people in the governor's house, so that people in our local government, so that people at Courts Plus, so that people at the hospital, so that, and you just, so that people in the school system, so that people will know Jesus Christ and they'll know the liberating truth that comes because of Jesus Christ. Excuse me just a moment. I have a heating pad on and it just dropped out. Okay, that's embarrassing. All right, so we have one goal, a unity of mind, a unity of spirit, but now we also see a unity of action. Look at verse 28. And in nothing terrified by your adversaries, which is to them an evident token of perdition, but to you of salvation and that of God. What is our goal? Our goal is get out the gospel. Our goal is get out the gospel. Now that's right now, we're just at the beginning stages here as a church, and what are we focused on? We're focused on how will we get out the gospel. That's a group decision. That's not just a me decision. I can tell you how I'm wanting to get the gospel out personally. I can tell you how I'm wanting to get the gospel out through this body, but it's not about me. It's us. How will we train our children? How will we educate our children so that they know the truths of the gospel? How will they know that Satan is a liar and a deceiver? How will they know that the best way is always to just listen to what God's word says and to do it rather than to experiment and see if what God says is true? Do you see the difference? Well, that's going to be part of the ministry we have as a church. When we, as a church, come together, I can't teach every class. Not possible. You wouldn't want me to. That would be neglecting the giftedness that's in this group. How will we reach people in the community? Well, we can do visitation, and that will be a good thing to do where we're going out door to door, but the reality is the best visitation we're going to do is probably going to be on the court, is probably going to be in, in the business field, is probably going to be at the hospital, it's going to be in the clinic. As we begin to meet people, and we, we live in such a way that reflects the gospel, and we tell them how good God is. As, as I've just been sharing with you, the thing that I'm so convinced about is, I don't have to tell people how awful and how wicked they are. I just need to tell them how good God is. And when they see God, they recognize what they are. I am nothing like God. I'm selfish and I'm self-centered and I lie and I cheat. At least I'm always tempted to do that before maybe I make the right decision. You know, God's never tempted to cheat. In fact, who God is is what makes heaven so wonderful. If you take God out of heaven, heaven's not heaven. If you take the Holy Spirit out of me, I'm not who I should be. 
You see, we all have one goal. We are striving together. We're working together. You see, no one here is riding. Everyone is pedaling. Everyone is working. For the last 30 years, Cindy and I have had a tandem bike. Till recently, it was actually the same tandem bike. I actually, we got rid of it, and that's when we were doing the, uh, the bike tour. But I don't know how often we'll be riding along, and someone always thinks it's so funny, we'll be riding along and someone will yell at me and go, hey, she's not pedaling. <laughs> and it, they always think they're so funny. But, you know, the reality is, I know when she pedals and when she doesn't. Because all of a sudden it goes from being really easy to, oh man, I hope she's feeling better soon. <laughs> I hope she's going to start pedaling soon. Now, you know, in a church, we're striving together. We work together. It's a partnership together. Now, when Cindy went down to South Carolina, Zach didn't feel good. In fact, she took him to the doctor and they thought it maybe had strep and then they realized he had the flu. And so for a couple days, Zach was like worthless. He went to my daughter's house, went downstairs so that no one would be around him and he just slept. And you know, I was okay with that. Now, if next month he's still in my daughter's basement, still sleeping, I got a problem with that. Why? Because he's gone from needing rest, he's gone from being sick to being lazy. You know, if I could put it just easily here as a church, everybody ought to have a chore. You know, in a, in a home, everybody's got chores. We started with our kids when they were very little. When they couldn't do anything else, they could empty a trash can. And I might have a trail of Kleenexes all the way to where they were going to throw it away. But the reality was... Everybody had a chore. When they got a little bit bigger, they could help do the dishes. When they got a little bit bigger, they could help empty the table. When they got a little bit bigger, they could cut the grass. When they got a little, a little bit bigger, they could blow the snow. Oh, for those days when they get big enough to blow the snow, right? <laughs> you see, everybody now, it's not one person in the house that's doing everything. It's everybody working together. And what happens? Home is a lot of fun. In fact, it's more fun when you get a couple people helping you to do something. I don't mind it at all. We got a dishwasher and we don't always use the dishwasher. Why? Because my wife and I can do it together and have a good time while we're doing it. You know, the church is the same way. When people come in, maybe you've been beat down, maybe you're hurting. We understand. You need to heal. But understand, the joy is not in just staying on the couch and everyone serving you. As soon as you're healthy, you want to find it. What can I do? I love it. We've got a number of young children here, and what do they do? They go through, and you're going to see them doing jobs. Some of them are going to be helping put away hymnals. Some are going to be picking up trash through the building. Some are going to be straightening things. Why do they do that? Everybody needs a job to be happy. He not only talks about, though, this unity in our goal of getting the gospel out, and my question would be, so how can you help in that goal? But then there is also unity in conflict. 
Look at verse 29. For unto you is given in the behalf of Christ, not only to believe on him, but also to suffer for his sake, having the same conflict which ye saw in me and now here to be in me. What should every believer expect according to these two verses? Conflict. But remember, now it's not conflict with each other here, is it? It's not conflict with other believers which is sadly what happens among a lot of believers. We end up fighting among each other, and we never really get out to what the job is. And the job is we need to understand there are going to be adversaries and there's going to be suffering, and possibly that's a fearful thought for you. Fear comes from doubt, doubting that maybe you're wrong as opposed to knowing that you're right. What does he say here, though? He says, you know... They look at you, and when they threaten you and you don't back down, they say, obviously you're guilty, obviously you're wrong, and you, you understand, no, I would be terrified except for the fact I know for certain whom I've believed. And he is able to keep what I've committed unto him against the day he's coming back. See, that's the reason why Paul could say, I wish you could just understand that the things that happen unto me are happening for the furtherance of the gospel. So is that bad or good? Well, it's good. Because no matter what they do to me, whether I live or whether I die, the end result is Christ is glorified. And that is all that matters because I will spend eternity in heaven. I am secure. And the security of your salvation is an important thing because it's what gives you the confidence to go out and tell other people you need Jesus. You see, suffering comes with a relationship. And you need to know suffering is pretty common among believers. Sadly, in America, we think taking up our cross and following Christ. Our cross is a headache we've got that day or bad traffic. Boy, today I really had to bear my cross. We have so totally missed what the scripture said. Traffic is because of where you live. That's not your cross. You see, your cross is having the mind of Jesus Christ, of being able to think the right way and to do what God's got you here to do. Every one of you are here on purpose, even guests. God's got you here on this earth on purpose, and you get the opportunity to be used by God.